Father, your word is indeed a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so I pray that as we look at your word together, that light would shine, making our way clear. Please help us to understand and please help us to walk in the path that you have illuminated for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we saw in Romans chapter 6 that those of us who have been baptized into Christ have been set free from the mastery of sin and have become slaves of righteousness. We've died to our old life. We've been given a new life to live and we need to live it. I want to take you back to a verse I didn't comment on last week, namely Romans 6, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And that verse, I think, raises the very issue that Romans 7 addresses. What does it mean to be not under law, but under grace? And why is that the reason? Why sin has no dominion? Why is it that sin has dominion when you're under law, but not when you're under grace? I've got three headings, and the first is this. You're free from law to bear fruit in relationship with Christ. You're free from law to bear fruit in relationship with Christ. Let me read Uh, Romans 7, verses 1 to 4. I'll read from the ESV. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he or she lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Paul's point is that a legal relationship ends when one of the parties dies. That's true of a marriage relationship, and it's true of our relationship to the law itself. Death frees you from legal obligations. When I become an Australian citizen later today, I will, for the first time in my life, be legally obliged to vote. If you're interested, that's section 245 of the Commonwealth Electoral Act, 1918, (laughs) subsection 1. It shall be the duty of every elector to vote at each election. But subsection 4 says the divisional returning officer is not required to send or deliver a penalty notice if he or she is satisfied that the elector is dead. (laughs) Which is reassuring. The obligation ends with death. No one's going to be chasing you for fines in your grave. Paul says in verse 4, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. And I think the logic is the same as in chapter 6. 
If we've been baptized into Christ, we've been baptized into Christ's death. And that death was not only a death to sin, it was also a death to law. Christ was born under law, as Paul says in Galatians 4.4. He lived under the law and he died to the law. And so we also have died to the law with him. Now, in Paul's marriage example, if you're um, on the ball, you'll have noticed it's not the party who dies who's free to remarry. They're obviously dead. But in our case, our death to the law isn't the end. It's actually the start of a new life a new life with Christ. And I think that explains the logic here. Verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Now, Paul isn't just talking about the penalty of the law. He's talking about dying to the law itself. Our relationship with the law ended so that we could have a relationship with Christ. Nor is Paul talking about the moral standards of the law. We saw last week that grace is not a license for sin. We're enslaved to righteousness. The standards of the law are still uh, how God wants us to live. I think Paul is talking about the law as a system, as a covenant, as a way of relating to God that contrasts with grace. It's not that the law wasn't a gracious gift from God. It was. But under the law, righteousness was counted to those who obeyed. Deuteronomy 6.25, we will have righteousness if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. And to those who disobeyed, sin was counted. Grace, by contrast, means that God counts righteousness apart from works. That's Romans chapter 4. And Paul says that the purpose of dying to the law, to that old covenant, old system, it's not so that we're free to live for ourselves, but it's so that we can be free to belong to another, so that we can have a relationship with Christ and bear fruit in relationship with Christ. Look at verses 5 and 6. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You could call this two ways to live, although that name's already taken. Perhaps we'll call this two realms in which to live. It's less catchy, but um, (laughs) perhaps a little bit closer to Paul's thought. The shock is that far from bringing righteousness and life, the law is associated with that old realm of sin and death, what Paul calls the flesh. And far from promoting ungodliness, his gospel of justification by faith apart from works of the law leads to the release from the law that enables fruitful life in the new way of the Spirit. That would be a shock to at least some of Paul's readers. I think that's why he starts by saying, look, I'm talking to people who know the law. These were pro-law people. They they thought that you need the law to be righteous. And Paul says, no, you need to be free from the law to be righteous. 
We'll think more about life in the Spirit next week when we look at chapter 8. But in the remainder of chapter 7, Paul wants to clarify the relationship between law, sin, and death. So secondly, the law is good, but it arouses sin leading to death. The law is good, but it arouses sin leading to death. Let me read verses 7 to 13. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. When I was about 13, I discovered that I have an allergy to penicillin. I discovered the hard way when I was prescribed penicillin for an infection. And when I took the penicillin, I came out in a nasty rash. That's how I knew that I was allergic to penicillin. I didn't actually know already because I already had a rash from my scarlet fever. But, um, but the, the rash, the second rash, showed me that I was allergic to pen- penicillin. It, I had a reaction. The allergy, the predisposition was there before, but there was nothing for it to react to. And so I didn't know what it meant to be allergic to penicillin. I hadn't experienced that before. Now, penicillin is good. It saved millions of lives worldwide. But in my case, it aroused my allergy and produced a rash. And for some people, penicillin allergy leads to not just a rash, but to anaphylactic death. The very thing that promises life brings death. Not because it's a bad thing or a poisonous thing, but because their bodies react badly to it. They have this allergic predisposition. And I think the idea in Romans 7 is that humans in our natural sinfulness are allergic to the commands of God. They produce a reaction in us. By nature, we don't want God to be in charge. But it's only when God sets a concrete boundary that we have something concrete to react to. We're so opposed to God that merely saying, you shall not covet, is enough to arouse covetousness. It's almost as though the serpent of Genesis 3 whispers, did God really say that? What's wrong with a little bit of coveting? It's just a look, just a wish, just a fantasy. What what could God possibly have against that? Is he really that mean? I think it's significant that Paul uses coveting as his example because it's an observable fact that laws can and do improve outward human behavior. 
there's something motivating about the threat of punishment or even just the disapproval of other people. But the Tenth Commandment is the only one that is purely a matter of the heart. God always demanded obedience from the heart, but the written law can't change the human heart. Because thirdly, the law is powerless to free from sin. The law is powerless to free from sin, verses 14 to 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul's describing the experience here of someone who wants to keep the law, but finds that he can't. There's a conflict between the mind or the inner being and the flesh. He's so controlled by sin that he says it's not he himself acting, it's sin acting, there's nothing good in him. And for some interpreters, these verses vividly describe the Christian's ongoing struggle with sin. While for others, this is the experience of someone living under the law with the present tense used for rhetorical effect. Whichever view we lean towards, and I suspect there will be a variety of views in this room, whichever view we lean towards, we need to be careful of both over-realized and under-realized eschatology. On the one hand, we mustn't think that we now have the full experience of resurrection life, that we are totally free from the struggle with sin. But on the other hand, we mustn't think that we experience nothing of that new life now. And I suspect our danger is more the latter than the former. Do you think of the gospel as forgiveness for the past and hope for the future, but not so much as power for the present. Let me take you back to verses 4 to 6. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. That's the purpose, that we can be fruitful now. 
For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the Lord were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Verse 5 is past tense. This experience of sinful passions being aroused by the law and bearing fruit for death is something that Paul says belongs to our old life in the flesh. And for what it's worth, I think that's the experience Paul is describing in verses 14 to 25. Life in the Spirit is what he goes on to talk about in chapter 8, which we'll look at next week. But whether you agree with me or not, I hope you will agree with me on these two things. First, now that you've died to the law, you should expect to bear fruit for God. You died to the law so you can belong to Christ. You have a relationship with him. That means you can bear fruit in godly living. And secondly, the law does not produce that fruit. A few months ago, I bought an electric keyboard, and when I got it out of the box, I noticed that it didn't come with a power adapter. Uh, And I checked the manual, and it said the adapter was sold separately. (laughs) So I went to the music shop, and I bought an adapter, and I was really excited to be able to play my keyboard. But as I was disposing of the packaging for the keyboard, I found at the bottom of the big box, a little white box, cunningly disguised as one of those little white polystyrene corner cubes, And it turned out that there was a power supply. And then I noticed a sticker on the box saying, bonus adapter included. (laughs) It turned out that my keyboard came with a power supply and I hadn't noticed. Is that you in your Christian life? (laughs) Do you think that when God saved you, He didn't give you the power to change, or at least not yet. You have to wait for the resurrection. Have you resigned yourself, not just to a constant struggle with sin, and we'll see next week that that struggle with sin is definitely part of the Christian life. Don't hear me to be denying that. But have you resigned yourself not only to struggling with sin, but to a constant defeat at the hands of sin? If so, know that you are free to bear fruit to God. Or are you trying to power your Christian life with law rather than grace? Are you still trying to please God by your works? When you're conscious of your sin, do you beat yourself up, shaming yourself for falling short of God's standards? Saying, you've got to do better. Does that lead you to despair? Does that lead you to maybe minimizing your sin, trying to cover it up? Brothers and sisters, we're free from the rule of sin because we're not under law, but under grace. I've been reading a fascinating book by Jonathan Haidt called The The Righteous Mind. He's a psychologist. And uh, he writes this, when my son Max was three years old, I discovered that he's allergic to must. When I would tell him that he must get dressed so that we can go to school, he'd scowl and whine. The word must is a little verbal handcuff that triggered in him the desire to squirm free. It's very reminiscent, isn't it, of what all of us like. You don't have to be a three-year-old to experience that. 
So as an experiment, he said to him one night, Max, you must eat ice cream now. And then Max said, but I don't want to. <laughs> and so four seconds later, he said, Max, you can have ice cream if you want. And he said, I want some. Let me put it this way. Being under law means you must be godly. Being under grace means you can be godly. God accepts us as we are. That's the precious truth of justification by faith. But he also gives us the power to live godly lives, fruitful for him. The law is powerless to free us from sin. Instead, it arouses sin, leading to death. But you are free from law to bear fruit in relationship with Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for this precious truth. We praise you that we're not under law. We praise you that we are free from the penalty of the law, but also free from that that system in which we can only be righteous by doing the right thing. Thank you that we're accepted. And thank you that through dying to the law, we have also been united to Christ and that in him we can bear fruit. I pray that you would help us to do that, help us to take hold of these precious truths and to live for him. In Jesus' name, amen.